Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me, and I appreciate you continuing to subscribe. Well, I'm so excited to have David Butwin as my guest today. He is a freelance writer, uh, a journalist. Uh, he's written for the Christian Science Monitor, the Saturday Review, Esquire, Sports Illustrated, and Gourmet Magazine, and also at the very beginning of his career at the Minneapolis Star. He is also the author of A Minnesota Kid in Search of Heroes and Ghosts. Great to have you. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. I'm in Maine, which uh, I like to think of as uh, Minnesota by the sea. Oh, <laughs> it, it has kind of the same state of mind in Maine? It does. It does. Um, although it's maybe Minnesota in the 50s or 60s up here on mid-coast Maine, but there's a similarity. Oh, that's great. So let me start by asking you this. Uh, what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I think I'd been mulling it and messing with it for a long time while I was doing a lot of other writing. Uh, and I'd put it aside and I told my daughter, you know, every writer has a book in, in, in inside a drawer in his office. And then I, 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 I think it was around 1954, my sister, my older sister had been at a, uh, a high school reunion, Central High, and a classmate of hers, a guy I knew in the neighborhood, uh, wrote something in a local weekly, the what was it called, uh, Highland Villager, uh, about the old neighborhood. And this kind of spurred me on. I got kind of more interested than I had been in looking back. And 
so one thing led to another, and uh, I just I kind of started exploring the the earliest days I could remember. That's great. Yeah. So you say in your book that you were born in 1939, but first open your eyes on April 28th, 1949. What happened on that day? Oh, yeah. In the book, uh, I talk about uh, the first opening baseball, opening day baseball game I went to. Um, I think uh, the school let us out, Maddox grade school, and we'd get on the streetcar, Snelling, and go out to university and go to the ballpark, Lexington ballpark. And uh, I was already, a, I called up, I was a rabid fan. My mother corrected me. It's rabid, David, not rabid. But I was a rabid fan already and uh, read the papers every day. And, and so it, baseball was what grabbed me early. So you were a Saints fan. Uh, were the Minneapolis Millers the, the the enemy back then? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do a chapter in the book uh, about public enemy number one, and it had to do with a particular Minneapolis Miller. But um, yeah, we laughed about Minneapolis, although we had friends and relatives in Minneapolis, but we, we thought it was kind of a strange place. It did have better lakes or more lakes, but um, uh, and the Minneapolis Millers played at Nicollet Park, and it was what everyone always called a bandbox. And um, I only got to the, the place once. It was actually a high school Twin City game. It, it, it just felt like enemy territory. So I, I never really saw a Miller's or Saints game there. We don't really have that anymore in Minnesota, like a, an intense rivalry between Minneapolis and St. Paul. I mean, people from their respective cities will will joke about the other sometimes, but I can't imagine going into, you know, behind enemy lines in the, the other twin city, you know, and, and feeling that hostility. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it was brought out by the teams, the sports uh, teams. Uh, there, were, there were hockey teams from each town and uh, that sort of thing. And um, I guess beyond that, you're right. Many, Minneapolis kind of always looked down on us. We were the smaller, but we thought we were quainter and we had Scott Fitzgerald and they didn't. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So uh, you grew up in Highland Park, right? Well, uh, not technically. Um, that was kind of a funny point I made in the book that um, uh, I grew up on two blocks the other side uh, of Randolph. It would have been north of Randolph. So that didn't put us in Highland Park. Um, and Highland Park was what we, we thought was a pretty ritzy place. Um, but uh, a lot of my friends uh, came came to school from Highland Park, so you know we let them in. What was it like back then? Well, um, you know, I have to say it was a simple simple time, sort of like Maine is right now. But now I'm I'm sort of joking. Uh, it was, you know, kids out on the uh, out on the block playing step ball. We had all these games we played. Um, Maddox playground was tarred over every. Uh, early summer, but as soon as uh, we could, we'd be back on on the field playing. And sometimes over at SPA, St. Paul Academy was on Randolph, and uh, we thought it was kind of a goody two shoes school. It was, um, uh, so we were tough guys, you know, from the other side of Randolph. We thought, um, and I guess um, there were there were things about it that seemed sort of storybookish, but. Um, I guess one of the things I, I well remember from early on were uh, were a, mur a couple of murders that happened in the 48 and 49. I think we wanted to talk about that. 
and one was um, the Geraldine Mingo murder of uh, uh, August 1948. Um, that sort of uh, set set things aside um that th those days for a while we weren't just playing and joking because it was a pretty serious thing yeah geraldine mingo um i was doing some research on a book of my own and came across the name geraldine mingo you know peripherally mm -hmm. so i searched the name online and found that you were connected to the case and and learned all about your book which was kind of cool so what do you remember? I mean, you, you actually lived through it. I mean, it was, it hit close to home for you, right? It did literally, um, I guess, because it was about a mile away and um, it, it happened in, in August that year. I mean, the only other thing that happened in August that year was that Babe Ruth died and that made the, that took Mingo off the headlines for a day. But um, she was uh, found dead, uh, I think it was off Pinehurst in Highland Park, a mile away. And um, from then on, you know, for the weeks through that summer, it was creepy. Uh, it, every day the paper had um, more material on it. It, it was never solved. Uh, and in the book, I tried to go back and um, talk to the detectives and police about it um, uh, from this period. Uh, and for a while, there was even a possibility of some uh, solution to the case, and then that that didn't pan out. But um, you know, I talked to a couple of my friends when when writing the book, and uh, one woman, Jane Fable, that I went to a grade school with, said um, told me that she and her uh, brother uh, slept, or she had her brother sleep out on the porch on McAllister Street for a week, being afraid of it, and. Um, I, I, I remember in the book saying only a week, I'm more than a week that I was afraid. Um, and there was a point that's, uh, that fall when my sister and I went to um, a friend of hers on Halloween just to top off the night. And her father then, uh, I believe, drove us home. And his, he's, he was saying, well, you don't want to be out on the street. There, some of these cars don't have good brakes. But I always thought that he was saying... Um, you don't want to be out on the street. There's creeps out there that could do you harm. But meanwhile, there there were other. There was an, a murder almost at the same uh, day or week. Uh, Juanita Wendell, a uh, young babysitter, was abducted and killed. And then a little while later, I think January of 1950, somewhat more dramatic story. Uh, a young woman got off a bus on a blizzardy night. Uh, near, I think, um, sort of Cretan or Cleveland and uh, maybe Princeton, one of those streets over there, and was abducted and killed. And there was even some talk about whether her, uh, the person she was living with, the man of the house, I think it was, was he an uncle or someone? He was, he was a musician. Could he have been involved? Well, that was never solved. But uh, I talked to, I remember a friend of mine, uh, from from high school, not that long ago, when I was doing the book, and he said, um, "Yes, he remembered Mingo, but as he put it, I was a Mary Agnes Kabiska guy. I mean, he was he was being silly, but um, it was right near his neighborhood, so his neighborhood was rocked more by that. Mine, a mile from his, was was Mingo territory. So she she was the victim, the third victim, Marianne." Yeah, yeah, of the yeah, I think it was over about 15 months or something like that. She would have been the third one, and uh, she uh, her her uh, killer was never found either. 
I don't think any of them were. So, um, uh, yeah, that that ca that caught us off guard. But you know, there were there was more going on then. Um, I'm trying to think of what else was going on. I think one of the interesting things in that period, when I was growing up, was I had an interest in people who who had a sort of otherness about them, and this included a couple of um, high school star athletes with Japanese names, which was very strange. I mean, St. Paul, let's face it, uh, was white bread country. And uh, to see a name like that in the box scores and, and in the sports page was strange. And what they were, two of them, and I got in touch with both for the book, um, they had come from the camps uh, uh, where they were put away with other Japanese of, of, of American ancestry um, uh, out west. And uh, one was Tom Kirahara, and uh, he went to Monroe and was quite an athlete. And the other was Akira Shiyazaki. And I remember we had a, uh, Marty O'Neill was the guy who did all the sports casting. All, I think it was WCCO, I'm not sure. Um, and I, uh, he, he called this guy Akira. Well, I knew from living in Hawaii when I did this book, you don't, it, that name was mis, mispronounced, but he was, an important person um, on this in, in the sports uh, sports world. Then uh, the two of them were, so I kind of tracked them down and and got got to know them at least. Well, I actually met Tom in person and the other uh, by by email and telephone. Uh, and then there was a kid that we went. I went to um, didn't go to school with him, but I met him via uh, sports. There was a young guy. It, we, I was probably in the eighth grade, and we, we played something called flag football. You probably know what that is. Sure, yeah, I played it too, yep. I bet you did. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Bemidji, grew up in East Bloomington, but lived a lot of my adult life in St. Paul. So I know okay. the area pretty well. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, then you know that. And, and that was a matter of pulling the flag out of the guy's rear end instead of, instead of t touching him or tackling him. And... We had a game one uh, one day with a, a school from sort of the mechanic arts capital area, uh, and there was a kid that we could not keep up with. He was flying left and right. We couldn't tackle tackle him. We couldn't grab the the, the flag out of his rear end, and uh, he, they beat us. And I, I remember uh, just being kind of fascinated by him because he so he sort of spoke with a. I could tell uh, a foreign accent. He seemed from somewhere else. And um, so uh, when doing the book, I got in touch with my good uh, boyhood friend, Gary Phillips, who lives now in Edina. And he, he knew something about it. He said, oh, that was, that was Gursky. Uh, and he went to mechanics. I didn't know that. But I started looking him up, and I found that online somehow that Gursky uh, had married. Uh, he was still alive. Um, and strangely enough, he was three years older than I was. So as I wrote in the book, he was a ringer. I mean, he should not have been playing with us, but he didn't seem like an older guy. So maybe he was 15 and we were 13 or 12, something like that. Then I tried to get in touch with him. Uh, and uh, I finally, I didn't talk to him. I talked a couple of times to his wife. He had been on a cruise. He it was hard of hearing. Um, now he had a, a pacemaker put in, and she was telling me this on the phone. So I, um, which all it kind of amazed me that this you know will of the wisp kid was older than I am, and and was now 
so almost incapacitated. But I found his sister, and she had gone with him to mechanics, and we talked a little bit about it. Um, and this this was the guy. He was he and uh, the family had left uh, Germany or Poland. Uh, they weren't German. They certainly weren't German nationals. I think they had been Poland or Russian, um, possibly Jewish. I, I didn't quite nail that down. Um, and had uh, left after the war. They were what I, I should be saying all that said this before. They were what we called uh, displaced persons, DPs, and. Um, it was it was not a cool thing. Um, DPS were not treated very well in America, and um, there were polls taken that um, Americans didn't think we should let them in, and 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 there there was a limit on on their coming in. So it was this otherness about him that kind of fascinated me. Um, and then I thought to myself when I was, oh wait a minute, I thought I know another DP very well, a, a good friend of mine. He's an uh, a well-known artist in Minneapolis now, Leon Husha. And I call Leon, or no, I, I happen to be in the Twin Cities. He says, Leon, were you a DP? He says, you're damn right I was. And um, he told me about coming over. He was born, um, he was Ukrainian, I think, but born in a camp in Austria uh, after, just after the war and had come over. Uh, and he told me about uh, kids that he had to fight uh, on the west side when he lived there and, and, and out on West 7th Street because um, of being someone different, talking different and all that. So that was my DP story. And and another, the last DP story I, I could tell was that um, my mother um, was trying to make ends meet. Um, she ran a bookstore my, that my she and my father had run and he died in, in the late, late 45. Um, she... Um, uh, during this period, took in, I guess you'd say immigrants or DPs. Uh, they'd come to our house one at a time, and she'd teach them English. She had a blackboard, I remember that. And you'd see these sort of, I remember a man, I wouldn't say he was disheveled, but he uh, he came up the walk in a kind of a gabber, old gabardine suit and um, would sit down with her, and, and uh, she'd, she'd, teach him, uh, she'd teach him English. He was probably talking Yiddish to him. And then again, I was also talking about these these American of Japanese ancestry that this caught my attention in those days. Yeah, I'll bet. I'm actually gonna to go back to the to the Geraldine Mingo case in just a bit. Sure. <laughs> so I, I do have some more questions, but I, I do want to point out to listeners, many of whom are are from Minnesota, uh, many of whom probably recognize your last name, but when, because it's connected to uh, an uncle who owned a very iconic store in downtown St. Paul, correct? That's right. Yeah, Butwin Sportswear. I still have a few jackets from back then, yep. Do you remember going in and visiting? And Oh, absolutely. Um, uncle Jack, he was my father's older, uh, one of two older brothers, and uh, he ran uh, Butwin Sportswear, and he was kind of a man about town, Uncle Jack, and He'd come over and rattle his uh, the coins in his pocket, and give me a quarter or something, and he's a wonderful man. And um, uh, he took me to my one of my first games. It was the opening night game of 1949. I had seen the day game. Now, the you know for 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 the opening night, this was more for business people and older people who didn't weren't working during the day, and people knew him left and right. We walked down to our box seats. Um, and he 
ran uh, Butwin Sportswear in the Finch Building down on Fifth uh, and Wakuda, and that was near. I guess you call it Lower Town now, but that was near um, Union Depot, which is also uh, writ large in my memory. Uh, and um, oh yeah, the jackets. Uh, yeah, they were turning out what we later called hero jackets. You know, sometimes with the leather sleeves. Um, and uh, I would go through. Because you know, us, us little buttwins were always given jackets, and I'd go through with my cousin Sam up and down the aisles, and I, I'd point to one and say, "Ooh, what about that one?" And he'd he'd say, "Ah, oh, that's schmutz. Uh, schmutz is Yiddish for trash or, or dirty." Uh, and I'd say, "Okay, what about that one?" He says, "Okay, you want that?" Um, so we were always clothed in buttwin jackets. Oh, that's great! And, and your your parents owned a a bookstore in Dinkytown, right? Yeah, um, they did. My father had, had a small bookstore first in downtown St. Paul, and then um, he opened up a store called Book Hunters uh, in Dinkytown. It was down the street from Bridgman's, that much I knew. Um, and uh, they ran it uh, from the early 40s. And, uh, he died in late 45. My mother, I think, finally sold it in 49. Um uh, but it was a it was a popular store. Uh, well, I wouldn't say popular, but it was a I think it was a serious bookstore, and he was quite the book, uh, the bookaholic. You could almost say he knew his books and um, a real bibliophile. That's a better word. Uh, and uh, I, I think um, a, a couple of uh, a couple of customers from the university, not then, but a little bit later when my mother was running it. One was Robert Penn Warren, and I think Saul Bellow used to drop in. I'm just name dropping here, you know. <laughs> oh, Bridgman's. Oh, my goodness. Did, did you know Bridgman's is making a comeback? They, they opened a Bridgman's in Woodbury last year. Oh, that's great! Yeah, we love Bridgman's. I, I remember those those ice those cones and um, butter brickle was one of the family favorites. Yeah, they still have butter brickle. Do they? Oh, that's great! Yeah, no, that was fun. And um, the the cover on the cover of the book, the Minnesota Kid, is um, a painting that my uncle Jack Perlmutter, um, who, who was in in Washington, came out and visited us. And painted, and it uh, it's a true Minnesota scene because it shows the um, some of the grain mills in the background and this uh, winding um, rail uh, rail line going off into the distance. And I think he he painted it right almost from the front of the bookstore. That's great. So I do have a, a few more questions about Gerald and Mingo. So it was August tenth, nineteen forty eight, uh, when she was killed. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Pretty young, pretty young woman, uh, grew up in Shakopee, right? And, and she moved to St. Paul on her own. Yes. Um, she lived in Shakopee, which I, in the book I say was uh, as exotic sounding to me as Timbuktu. I didn't know from Shakopee then. Um, but we saw that name, uh, that place name every day in the paper. She came to live, as as many young women did, as a domestic working for a family that I later knew or or knew relatives of, they were the Batwinics, not to be confused with the Butwins, although people did confuse us sometimes. Um, uh, and and so she she uh, was there really to watch the kids. And uh, that night she was supposedly had gone off to the Highland Theater very nearby. 
but it was discovered that she either didn't do that or actually did go downtown and went went to a couple of bars uh, with her friend, uh, a young man, Larry Lundin, I believe his name was, and he put her on a, a streetcar sending her home, and that's the last she was ever seen. Um, and uh, she was 17, attractive. She looked older in the pictures. I mean, she looked well into her 20s and kind of, you'd almost say stylish, but um, she was just a 17-year-old kid. And her body was found in the backyard uh, one morning early by a man named Saul Selle, S-E-L-L-E. He looked out, out of the back uh, window of his house. He had let his dog out and he saw the crumpled body, I think out by the driveway or out by the alley. You know, only Minnesota, only St. Paul people in Minneapolis know what an alley is. We don't have them much in the East, but um, she was out by the alley, her, her beaten body, stabbed body. And um, so that's what that's what started it off. And uh, Lundin was taken down uh, with a de by a detective to look at the body, and um, he kind of trembled. But he he was somewhat suspected for a while. But he uh, it was that idea was dropped, and uh, you know no nobody ever uh, nobody was ever really connected to the murder. But um, she all these years later, when I was researching it, I, I realized that she had been working for the Batwinics and two doors from that Batwinic, and they but they they ran the um, downtown also uh, a furniture store, the Batwinic Brothers Furniture, and a couple of doors from the house where she had worked um, uh, lived a friend of mine, a, a, a grade school and high school friend, Conrad Batwinic, and so I got in touch with him and learned a little more. He, he, he was young and didn't much remember her, but his sister did remember her. <clears throat> and I interviewed her, talked to her when she, she was living down in Washington. She had actually remembered going out to Shakopee one time to take the girl home. The police people I talked to, uh, I talked to three different cops about it. And actually there was some activity um, all these years later, you know, in 2010 or whenever I was talking to them, that a woman came forth and said that she had questioned whether somewhat questioned that her late husband might have been the guy who did it because uh, he was a womanizer and and got around played around a lot but at any rate um uh she uh the police never really came close to nailing it but what happened that night was uh yeah, Larry Lundin apparently put her on that streetcar and went his went his way home, which was the other direction to the east side of St. Paul. He took his own streetcar home. And somehow after the um after she got off she was abducted after she got off the streetcar, uh, and they didn't use the term then, but possibly raped. I mean, she was really savaged. And um uh, it was it was never known, but she only had a, had to walk a couple of blocks to get home from the Randolph, probably the Randolph Hazel Park streetcar, um, and and she never made it home. Hmm. So at at the time, was Lundin uh, the only suspect that you're aware of, or were there some others? Uh, I, I don't think they got too close to anyone. Um, 
And I, I think he was only nominally a suspect because he had seen her, been with her that last night. And at, at her funeral, he was seen trembling and saying her name over. And there was some suspicion uh, or talk that they had planned to get married and perhaps even, although this may have been made up and it was never proven that she may have been pregnant. I don't think that was that was the case. But all of this came up when I, I went back and talked to the, uh, the St. Paul Police Department. Um, and the last woman I talked to, um, I mean, the last police person I talked to was a woman, uh, a Minneapolis woman, uh, who worked the case, uh, and she was she was a cold case expert, and she was fascinated by the case, and she she really felt that that there hadn't been enough solid work on the case back then, and also even the suspicion that perhaps as she read the five hundred pages or a thousand or whatever it is of the case that maybe the police poo pooed it a little bit, you know, maybe this was a girl asking for it, you know, that kind of crap. And um, uh, this this woman, I don't have her name in front of me, and I should because she um, she was a terrific source. But she, um, she she felt that the case didn't get enough attention back then. But then she had to drop it because there just wasn't enough to go by, enough to go on, I should say. Is it still considered a an open case? Technically, yeah, it it is. Um, uh, I I think. There may have been with her uh, a foundation or something that was providing the funds for uh, investigating cold cases, and that ran out. So yes, I mean it probably probably would be. Although you know, it, what is it now? Seventy some years since since that night in August. Yeah. So it is very interesting and odd, right? That three murders of young women within 15 months happened in St. Paul. I'm sure plenty of people have wondered, but has anyone tried to make a connection between the three? Uh, good question. I think that was uh, bandied about back then. Um, I, I, I think there probably wasn't, um, but uh, there wasn't a connection, but it, it was always possible. And I think eventually all the, the, um, theories led to nothing. And uh, so these, these two cases uh, just just sort of disappeared into the mist, and, and we don't know now what happened to them. The Kabiska case was fascinating, too, um, in, in its way. I mean, much different. But she was a sophisticated young person. I think she had been to a concert at the U at Kaufman Memorial Union that night. But, you know, again, alone on a, on a goddamn streetcar uh, in, in a blizzard, um, you 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 don't wonder, and and yet, yet at this time, I mean, I'm not. This is a ridiculous connection to make, but my, my sister, when she was 12, got on a train in in St. Paul Union Depot, and went alone to Washington D.C. to see our relatives, and came back the same way. And uh, there was a somebody or other on the train that looked after her and, and checked on her, but it's uh, people did things more than went across town, they went across country and, you know, mostly survived. And when they didn't, it was, it was, it was sad, disgusting, awful. Um, but, you know, I guess those were, those were such different times. 
you, you have a, a real nostalgia for streetcars in St. Paul, don't you? Absolutely. Um, we took a streetcar everywhere. Most of them are those old clanking things with a cow catcher in front. Um, and then uh, along came, although quite early, because I remember them, um, what they called the PCC cars um, that had a kind of a streamlined deco look. And those were the ones that ran on University Avenue and also on the, the old St. Clair Payne. And not too many years ago, my wife, through a friend of ours in, in New Jersey, found a little foot-long model of that very St. Paul streetcar with the yellow sides and the green trim. Uh, it sits in my office back in back in New Jersey, and it says to St. Paul on it. Um, and it's an exact, we could say, a, a replica of those, those streetcars. But streetcars took us everywhere. And then they kind of went out in the 50s and um, when things were changing over and the interstate highways were coming in and now now we had uh, buses everywhere. But I I, I kind of miss the streetcars and I've, I've been in other cities and looked for them and written about them because um, there are still some old ones around as in New Orleans and uh, San Francisco and places like that. Uh, and actually, when I went to write a magazine story about um, light rail and the existence of old streetcars, I found that the street very, uh, those PCC streetcars from University or Payne, uh, I should say University or St. Clair, had been sold to Mexico, I guess in the 53, 54, and now they were had re, reappeared in Newark, New Jersey. I learned that, and so uh, as part of my article, I I went for a few miles to Newark one day and got on the streetcar that I may have ridden in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul in 1951. It was kind of cool. And I loved, I loved standing in the back, the sort of vestibule in the back of, of those old streetcars going downtown. Um, some of them are open air, and you'd be back there with the older guys. You were either smoking or bullshitting about baseball or something. And, uh, you know, you just felt like, you were in another another world back there, um, and and you know they had wicker seats. Uh, there was something charming about them, um, e even to a young kid. And and uh, there was um, a sort of a habit. I, I was I was not a, a real heller. Uh, I I didn't do this, but there were kids that would actually yank down the catenary pole or whatever it's called, the overhead pole that conducted the 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 streetcar with electricity. And uh, they'd, they'd tear it down and then go running away, and the motorman would have to jump out and chase them and get the, get the pole back up. I didn't do any of that, but um, I, I, I loved riding the streetcars wherever they took me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. See website for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That's great, yeah. So you got your your journalistic start uh, working for the Minnesota Daily and the Minnesota the Minneapolis Star. Right? Well, yes, um, I, I did actually. I started writing for the Maddox Messenger in the seventh grade. I covered sports, of course, um, and then in in uh, in high school I was sports editor of the Central Paper, and then I went on to the university and I wrote sports every day for four years uh, at the U. Um, which was great fun. I was sports editor the last couple of years. I got sent to the Rose Bowl and all of that. And and then uh, af- after that, um, I sort of drifted away. It was probably best for me because the next job I got was at the Minneapolis Star and it was not sports. It was probably the best thing that happened to me unless I was going to be a, a lifer in the sports world. So you had a you had a byline right with the star. Oh yeah, um, byline every t- yeah I had a byline from the seventh grade on. I think I was Dave mostly for quite a while, and then in, uh, from Minneapolis to Honolulu at some point I became David. And uh, oh yeah, I mean I when I was on the Minneapolis um, Star, I was a my first job was a, a police reporter. So you know I covered a lot of this same stuff that we're talking about, and um, I have to get to work at, or let's see, I, yeah, I had to get to work at six o'clock um, at, at the police station in Minneapolis. And uh, I, I remember there was a, a, a wonderful old gentleman who was my sort of rival competitor from the St. Paul papers. Um, but he worked and lived out of Minneapolis and covered for the St. Paul dispatch. And I remember I'd say to him, um, God, I hope I get a byline on that. And he'd say, Oh, he'd say, um, well, that and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. You know, he was always trying to put down all this stuff. But, of course, a byline mattered. Yeah, it was always important. And what, one of my – I know you've, you've done this already, but one of my great thrills, uh, front-page byline, was not something I – and this may have presaged something in my career, something I dug up on my own because almost everything you did for a newspaper you did on – their time and and your your eight hours on duty, but I was in um, the Grandview uh, barber shop in I believe July of '63. That was the summer before I went out to Hawaii to live and work. And uh, who walks in but T. Eugene Thompson? And he had just been um, uh, put uh, had just been released on bail for the murder for hire of his wife Carol, and. Uh, I looked and I think, oh, I better start making mental notes. I was already in the barber chair. So I wrote a little piece, a first front page piece for the Minneapolis Star. It ran the next day uh, or the day after about this little man who sat 
reading an Archie comic book uh, while I was um, rapidly trying to remember everything I saw and find, finally watched him get up and have his have, fall asleep in the barber chair and have his haircut and go out the back door. So um, th that was that was my role. The other was that I, I went to the scene of the murder. I was sent there that day, um, and I saw the blood stains on the snow of the very morning it happened. But anyway, you've been over that already. Yeah, uh, and for my listeners who are thinking right now, that, that sounds a little familiar. Um, I interviewed Bill Swanson. Oh, sure. It's interesting that you got to to, to meet him in person. He was just as uh, strange and eccentric as Bill Swanson makes him out to be in his book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it was very odd because um, a guy walked up to him in the barber uh, in the barber shop and said um, something like, uh, are we still on for, uh, or no, Thompson said to him, are we still on for drinks on Thursday? And the guy said, mm, I, I think not, or something like that. Can I take a rain check? Uh, and, uh, so it was, it was just, a, you know, like 15 minutes of description of this guy who was, who was, oh, and then, and then for the book, um, I tracked down because that's kind of what that book and the other memoir are, are, are really founded on, um, research. Now it is, um, it's, they aren't memoirs in what happened to me when I did this and, wh and why I ended up there. There's, there's a lot of bringing it up to the to date up up to the present and i talked to the uh, man who ran the barber shop and cut um, his hair that day i found him all those years later and had a wonderful talk with him about it uh i and then after that i talked to the barber shop owner's daughter as he was in very bad shape in the hospital so i kept in touch with them uh, because that's where we all went for our haircuts in those days um you'd walk in and say flat top with a bald spot. You know, that's what all the jocks had. And that's what we all had. Um, sort of, uh, what, what else would we call them? Just crew cuts, I guess. And that's kind of what the way he cut Thompson's hair. Yeah, it's a very distinctive look for him when you see him in the pictures. He's got the the glasses and the, <laughs> the the flat top. Right, that was right next to the Grandview Theater. I, I love that area. It was a, it was a hike from where I live, but that's where we all went to get our I don't know what was it fifty cents or something for for a haircut. Um, the three barbers were, were lined up. There were three chairs, and uh, they were all uh, fun guys to to deal with. But the thing I with me in, in those barber chairs is is um, I had a, tre a tremendous um, uh, ability to laugh at when when he'd bring the razor down my neck, and so I, I'd always try to think of the grimmest thing I could think of in my life, maybe maybe the Geraldine Mingo murder, so I wouldn't start laughing um, because I was very ticklish. <laughs> so that murder of Carol Thompson uh, was another one, basically in the neighborhood you grew up in. Yes, absolutely. That was yeah. Um, I my I had to write a second day story. Uh, well, the murder happened. Let's see, in the morning. So no, it it made the afternoon star. But for my next day's article, um, I talked about um, the uh, other murders in Highland Park over the over the not so many years before, and uh, how I don't. My lead was something like. Um, you won't find many doors unlocked in the Highland Park district of St. Paul today, blah, 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 right? Um, and then I, I talked about 
the, the um, murder of Carol uh, Thompson, but there had been others. Uh, another one that happened very near there, a classmate of mine's father, uh, Herman Pastor, uh, was a sort of, I don't want to say a gangland guy, but he had connections and he I believe he was in the slot machine business and all of that. And um, uh, he was shot through a window in his house in about 60 or 59, 60 or 61. I was in college and killed. Uh, and I don't think they ever solved that one. Uh, but that was nearby. And that, that had been just a, a couple of years earlier. And uh, Don Pastor was a his son was a classmate of mine, and I remember Herman coming to our eighth grade graduation. He was very slick, uh, and he had this cool little miniature camera. It almost came out of his buttonhole or something, and he was taking pictures of us. And then the next thing I knew, he was shot dead in his in, in his parlor uh, nearby the Thompson house. Oh goodness! Wow. Yeah. So. So that um, that that got my attention, you know, and, and it was so much for me close to home because I lived on the other side of, of Randolph, the other side, of, not within a mile of uh, Highland Park or, or uh, closer than a mile, but within a mile of these murders. So and the, and the Cabisco one was close. The other one I had mentioned, the girl that was abducted, that was down somewhere near the Capitol. But otherwise, Highland Park had the. Uh, uh, had it had the murder uh, murder capital at that time. Wow, it's so interesting that that they were all happening there. I mean, for those people who know St. Paul, again, as you've already stated, Highland Park is considered one of the more upscale neighborhoods in the city. Right. Yeah, and and still is. I remember Cecil's Delicatessen. I mean, we had our places to go in Highland Park, and St. Catherine's College was was sort of on that side of things. But um, uh, yeah, for that period of time, um, uh, murder was was front page stuff, and and Highland Park was <laughs> was the place for it. I guess. I mean, it's not as if you walked in fear, but that summer of '48, we we certainly did. We were very aware of it, and the papers with the headlines every day and the pictures every day of uh, Jerry Mingo, she was called by her boyfriend, uh, peering out of the dispatch in Pioneer Press. Um, it caught it more than caught your attention. Yeah, I'll bet. So when you go back to St. Paul now, where do you go? What do you do? What places do you visit that remind you of your childhood? Well, the the first thing that that hit me when I went back, and I haven't been back for a while. I need to get back. Um, the the great elm trees that overhung uh, Palace Avenue and all the all the streets in our neighborhood, which really the only thing that gave it any distinction, went out with that Dutch elm disease years ago. So, and trees have have come in and somewhat shaded the street, but. Um, I'd, I'd go back now to um, the Maddox playground. There is no more Maddox school, um, but there's a playground and tennis courts, which, I mean, tennis would have been unheard of. Uh, I think you could have found tennis courts maybe at possibly at St. Paul Academy then. Uh, I, I'd miss right now um, the St. Clair broiler, which I used to love to go to at St. Clair and Snelling. And uh, I would I would just uh, walk the neighborhood. Definitely go downtown. I used to love um, 
Rice Park uh, was a sweet little park with a li great library on one side, the, cor uh, the courthouse on the other. Um, uh, and and it, it was uh, the center some, somewhat, I think, of the um, winter carnival when the, there'd be a, 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 a castle, uh, an ice castle there. Um, and I, I love downtown. I just walked the streets of downtown. I probably wouldn't know much of it anymore. And of course, I don't. I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I wouldn't forget Minneapolis because um, my mother had moved there, and I went to school in Minneapolis. My sister had lived in Minneapolis, so um, I'd probably, I'd probably hit the Mill City too. You know, I liked an uptown district and some of the, and definitely the campus and Dinky Town. I'd go back there. Right. Yeah, I'm I, I really missed the St. Clair broiler as well. They had the the most delicious waffle fries. Oh boy, yeah. And then uh, I'm sure you you're you're aware of this too. For many many years, William Kent Kruger, the the famed uh fiction writer from Minnesota, wrote his books at the St. Clair broiler. Oh, I didn't know that. Is he the mystery writer? Yeah. Yeah, he he writes a lot of stories about northern Minnesota. I should look that up. Yeah, I love the broiler. And, you know, but even before that, it was called, this is before your time and way back in my time, the, it was called the St. Clair Sweet Shop. Um, I think it was more of a dessert place, coffee and dessert place. Um, so I'm trying to think of what it was. that I, I, I remember I took my mother there last time I saw her. Um, and uh, she she wanted, we we'd, I picked her up at the Shalom residence way out by Como Park and it was a snowy day and uh, I said come on let's go get you a real meal so I went to the uh, uh, the St. Clair broiler and uh, she uh, she was dying for um, what was it she wanted Pam do you know what my mother wanted that day I'm trying to think of what it was uh, uh, it was definitely not kosher I'm trying to remember what it was but she wanted coleslaw on the side and uh, I, I've been back a couple times since. It was it was kind of a, a family uh, family meeting place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that place is sorely missed. That's for sure. So you have a website. Uh, let's talk about your your book and and how people can contact you if they would like to purchase it. What would you suggest? Um, well, yeah. The the way to get the book is to go to davidbutwin.com. Um, the, the website and there you can see how to get the Minnesota kid book or the one or the one about Hawaii. Uh, and, and that that's, that's the way you do it. Um, there's no, actually no other way. Now the only catch is um, I'm, my stash of books is back in Jersey right now. I'll be back in a few weeks and I'm the one, I'm the one who packages them and sends them out. I have plenty. Uh, so that's how you do. And you can read up on the book, the two books, and a little bit about me uh, uh, on a very pretty website that my wife, the artist and graphic designer, put together. Are people able to finagle a, an autograph out of you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, because I'm, I'm the guy who uh, puts the book uh, in the little uh, envelope. Um, I'll, I'll write anything you want on it, sure. Uh, and and that, that's a fun thing to do. And then I'll pop it in the mail and um, and you'll get it a few days later. That's great. Well, well, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing some of your, 
your memories and stories from your book. This has been really, really interesting. Well, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And, th- and by the way, where, do, where have you lived in St. Paul? Oh boy! <laughs> oh, okay. I've lived. I've lived in Lower Town. Um, I owned a house on on Daly Street off of West Seventh. Oh yeah. For a while, I lived in the Lincoln Court Apartments. I was obsessed with John Dillinger's shootout at the Lincoln Court oh, Apartments. Oh boy! There you years. go. Yeah. And I actually moved into that apartment building just so I could. This is a a, a strange stage that I was in in my life, so I could kind of picture in my head as I would walk through the hallways what, what happened on that day in, in uh, 1934 when he fought it out with, with uh, St. Paul police officers and federal agents, he and his girlfriend, and they, they made their escape. But yeah. Wow. Um, I lived on Portland Avenue. Um, sure. Oh, yeah. From William Mitchell School of Law. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's funny. Uh um, yeah, actually, my parents lived on, in Portland at one time, um, and and there's there's some um, uh, '30s crime stuff in the St. Paul. I mean, in the Minnesota Kid book, um, harking back to something uh, that my father uh, had remembered. Um, it's not Dillinger, but Babyface Nelson or somebody makes a makes an appearance. So that 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 might interest you. That's great. Yeah, something else to look forward to. Yeah. Well, well, thank you again, David. This has been fun. Well, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Again, I have been speaking to David Butwin, author of A Minnesota Kid in Search of Heroes and Ghosts. This is Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. Until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.